God wants for you a better joy than you want for you. Let me say that again. God wants for you a better joy than you want for you. I think most of us are convinced, even subconsciously, that the opposite is actually true. Right? Most of us are convinced that uh, God's agenda is to squeeze every last ounce of joy or happiness out of our lives, and, and that's why he gives so many rules, right? If you think about like, all of the rules in the Bibles, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, clearly God's agenda in writing those rules and delivering those rules to us and expecting us to live our lives according to those rules, clearly God's agenda is that he you know, just strip away any kind of like happiness that might characterize our life. And surely what God is after is some kind of begrudging submission where we just grit our teeth and bear up under what he expects of us in life. Right? A lot of us, we're convinced of that. And we're convinced that we better do what God says because he's perfectly capable of, right, lighting you up and like sending some horrible kind of cancer your way if you don't follow his rules. That's what a lot of us think. If that's you, then I want to spend the next four months trying to convince you that what God really wants for you is actually so much better than even what you want for you. Right, like God's desire for your joy, it exceeds dramatically your own desire for your joy. On top of that, God is much smarter than you are, so he actually knows how to get you there. Right, he knows the way to lead you to joy, the way to lead you to life. I want to spend the next four months trying to convince you that this is true. I want to spend the next four months trying to convince you that God wants a better joy for you than you want for you. And the good news is we're going to be, as Matt said, in the book of James for the next four months. And James is going to make that argument for me again and again and again. But before we turn to the book of James this morning, I want to spend just a minute in Psalm 16. This is one of about a hundred passages I could have turned to to make the point I'm trying to make at the outset of this series, but I want you to hear what David, the psalmist, says about our God. These are some of the words that Jonathan read to us as we opened this morning. This is Psalm 16, 7. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now notice that David's not trying to get away from the fact that God gives him instruction. David is praising God. He's blessing God. Why? Because God gives me counsel, he says. In other words, David has rightly understood that the law of God is something that God should be praised for. David has rightly understood that the law of God is something that leads us to life. It's not an obstacle to life. It leads us to joy. It's not a hindrance to joy. And so he blesses God for that. Furthermore, he says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David, he knows that as long as the Lord is near, and like that, that at my right hand picture, right, that's because the Lord is in this covenant relationship with me. I shall not be shaken, no matter what life throws at me, no matter how tumultuous and difficult and trying these days are. I have set the Lord before me, and I will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore, as a result of those things, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. This is not begrudging submission. This is not grit your teeth, grin and bear it. This is my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You let your Holy One see corruption. You won't abandon me. You won't forsake me. What will you do? Well, that's what verse 11 tells us. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
in your presence is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Church, God wants for you a better joy than you want for you. And he gives that joy to you when he gives you himself, right? It's in his presence that that fullness of joy can be experienced and savored. But don't miss the insinuation here of verse 11, right? There is a path to life and there are other paths that lead to death. And those other paths might in this life from time to time seem to offer us, seem to invite us into a kind of joy. But that kind of joy is flimsy and shallow and short-lived. The Lord, he describes the path that leads to life, that leads to a fullness of joy, a kind of joy that can never, ever leave you. Here's our hang-up with the book of James. Let me just like get it right out in front from the very beginning today. A lot of people like the book of James. They like it because James gives us clear, practical instructions on how to live our lives. And people typically like clear, practical instructions on how to live our lives. I like clear, practical instructions on how to live our lives. That's one of the great things about James, right? We will come in here and it will not be very difficult for us over the next four months to discern the way that God is calling us to go. It will not be difficult for us in the next four months to figure out what God wants from us. I don't think anybody's going to sit in here in the next four months and wonder, what is God's will for my life? Because it's just going to be very, very clear. And that's something that people like about the book of James. But, it's a big but, here's my, my caveat, in my experience, people are excited for practical instruction only insofar as it agrees with what they already think. We're excited to hear practical instruction so long as that instruction aligns with what we really want to hear in the first place. And so when James tells us that our lives are moving in the right direction and that the things that we want to do have already aligned us with the path of life that leads to fullness of joy at the Lord's right hand, then we will celebrate its teaching. But what many of us will find as we encounter the book of James is that we won't always find the book of James agreeing with the decisions we're already making, supporting the choices we've already selected for ourselves, right? blessing us in the direction or the path that we've already chosen to live upon. And so my prayer for us has been, as we prepare for this series, I've just prayed again and again that the Lord would teach us to believe that he knows better than we do the path that leads to life. I've prayed that the Lord would teach us to believe that it is in His presence at His right hand that there is fullness of joy and not some other destination that we might choose for ourselves. Here's another way to put this. When God gives you a command, church, I've prayed that you would believe that He's not trying to rob you Right, God's commands, they're not trying to steal joy from you. That's God's desire to instruct you on what the path to life really looks like. And I've prayed that we would see that and believe that increasingly over the next four months as we spend time in this letter. All right, today we're looking at one verse, James chapter 1, verse 1. And this is kind of an introduction to this series. We'll cover more ground as we uh, get going in the next few weeks, of course. But today, I want us to get a good sense of where this letter starts and have a sense of what the whole letter is about. And so, let me tell you kind of how we get there. But we're starting today just by reading together chapter 1, verse 1. So let's read. I hope you have a Bible in front of you in which you can do that. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. All right, pop quiz. Who wrote the book of James? 
James, it's not a trick question. Right, absolutely. James wrote the book of James. Now, there are at least four dudes identified in the New Testament by the name of James. The first one is a guy named James, the son of Alphaeus. That James is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Um, there's a guy in Mark chapter 15 who's identified as James the Younger. Um, there's a guy identified in Acts chapter 1 as James, the father of Judas. Yes, that Judas. Um, but then there is the fourth James who Bible scholars Bible scholars rarely agree about anything, but they absolutely agree about this. It's like 99.999% certain in their minds that the James who is the author of this book is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the same James who you might read about in the book of Acts, who becomes kind of a central figure in the early church. Um, In the early church, we see the explosion of the church, right? Um, The church in Jerusalem, it grows from a few people to a few thousand people seemingly overnight. Um, And James is clearly like a pillar of leadership in that church. He might even have been like the main primary preaching pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And so it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, who is the author of the letter of James in our New Testament. Now, if you know your New Testament well, that fact should actually amaze you. It should actually be amazing to us that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this book and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Why is that amazing? I'm glad you asked. During Jesus' life and ministry, most of the people in his like, immediate biological family were frankly kind of embarrassed about the kinds of things that Jesus was doing and saying. Right? It turns out that if you wander around rebuking religious authorities and casting out demons and claiming that you're going to destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days, when you do that kind of stuff, you tend to attract an uncomfortable level of scrutiny in your life. At least it was uncomfortable for Jesus' family members. They didn't like it. And they began to, as a result, suggest that Jesus was crazy. For example, this is what Mark writes in Mark chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Now Jesus, he's been teaching and healing some people, and he's cast out a demon here and there. Um, And he's trying to go home, like, to his house with his posse, with his disciples. And the crowd gathers around Jesus and around his house and around his disciples. And they're so thick and unruly and demanding that that homeboy can't even eat a sandwich when it's lunchtime, right? That's that's the reality of Jesus' life. Moms in the room, do you feel this? Right? I remember my wife when our kids were little, like she'd have the cup of coffee that she'd drink half of, and then it would get cold because she'd get distracted by a child's need, and so she'd put it in the microwave and press the plus 30 second button, and then you know, two hours later, she'd go back to the microwave and find her cup of coffee, and like basically the cup of coffee just lived in the microwave, right? Because she would say that she never had time to drink it because everybody was like asking things of her and demanding things from her. Well, that's Jesus right here, right? right the crowd's gathering, so he can't even eat. But look at verse 21. When his family heard it, his family, when they heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Man, if you're Jesus, that's a bad day, right? It's lunchtime, you can't eat, and now your family's trying to seize you and haul you away because they think you're crazy. It's pretty intense. We see in another spot, this is John chapter 7, verse 5, just a simple statement. For not even his brothers, Jesus' brothers, believed in him. Not even his brothers, not even James, believed in him. And so the question comes to our mind, doesn't it? What happened that led James, the brother of Jesus, to go from thinking that his brother needed to be institutionalized to thinking that his brother was the Son of God? What possibly could have caused such a massive change in James's opinion of his brother Jesus. Now, some of you know the, question, the answer to that question. Don't give it away yet. Let's sit on it for a minute. Let's think about it from this perspective. Put your hand in the air. How many of you here in the room have a brother? 
Right? Yeah, go ahead. Like show me. You can like lock your elbow if you need to, right? Just keep, keep that hand in the air for a minute, right? You've got a brother. I see people in the room who I know have brothers who aren't raising their hands. One of them is my son. Okay, very good. Yep. If, if you have a brother, I want you to keep it in the air. You don't need to be ashamed of that. It's not your fault that you had a brother, right? Nobody, nobody's going to blame you for anything. But right, keep that hand in the air if you had a brother. Now, here's my question for you. I want you to keep your hand in the air if at any point in time you have ever been tempted to call your brother Lord. I thought my hit rate on that question would be very low. Now, back in the air, if you've got a brother, back in the air, one more time, then I'll be done with this annoying stuff, I promise. All right, how many of you have ever been tempted to call your brother his, to call yourself your brother's servant? Again, not very many of us, not any of us, actually. So ask yourself the question, what would your brother have to do in order to persuade you that he is Lord? What would your brother have to do in order to persuade you that you are, in fact, his servant? Now, I have a brother, a younger brother. He's a great dude. I love Jeremy to death. It's been really awesome for me to see him grow up, to know and love the Lord and to follow the Lord, to lead his family spiritually. I love hanging out with him. We can spend time all of the time. You know what? I've never been tempted to call him Lord, right? Right, if he walked in the room today and he said, behold, I am the son of God, I would laugh until it was not possible for me to laugh anymore. And then I would say, no, you're not. You're the son of Sam and Linda. I remember you when you were in diapers. I remember your awkward death metal phase in junior high. And I remember doing your ninth grade algebra homework so that you did not flunk out of school. You are not the son of God. Sit down. That's what I would say to my brother because that's what a brother does to his brother when his brother makes outlandish claims about being the son of God and about being Lord, right? That's what brothers do. So what in the world could possibly have happened for James to say what he wrote here in James chapter 1 verse 1? Listen, he says, James, a servant of God. All right, that's fine. We're all on board with that, right? But, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he does, in fact, call Jesus his Lord, and he calls himself his servant. Now, James, he remembers Jesus in diapers, right? He remembers baby Jesus. He remembers young Jesus, and it was young Jesus that he was ready to have institutionalized. What possibly could have happened to persuade James that Jesus was Lord, and he was Jesus's servant. What possibly could have happened to lead to such an about face in James's own understanding of the person and identity of Jesus? What did Jesus do that led to such a dramatic reversal in his brother's opinion of him? All right, now the answer, which some of you knew five minutes ago. Jesus allowed, Jesus allowed Jewish leaders to arrest him and falsely accuse him. Jesus allowed Roman soldiers to shame him and mock him and torture him. Jesus allowed himself to be laden with a heavy wooden cross and he climbed a hill called Golgotha. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to that cross as a sacrifice for our sins, though he did not deserve to be. Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated and shamed and mocked on that cross where he bled for hours and hours until eventually he died because he choked on his own blood. Jesus allowed himself to be wrapped in a linen cloth and buried in a tomb. And then after three days, Jesus freaking rose from the grave. And at that point, yeah, at that point, I don't think James had an argument anymore. He was like, all right, Jesus, kind of annoying when you were a kid. I'm not so sure about this whole Lord and Christ thing. But oh, empty tomb. All right, now I'm persuaded. In fact, James was so persuaded that he went from wanting to institutionalize his brother, Mark chapter 3, to being willing to die for his brother. Now, it's not in the Bible. This is what church history tells us, that Jesus did, in fact, die because of his commitment to the fact that Jesus was Lord and Christ. Church history tells us that Jesus, because he wouldn't deny the fact, I'm sorry, history tells us that James, because he would not deny the fact that Jesus was the Christ, that he was hauled up on the temple mount and thrown from that temple mount because he wouldn't deny the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. But in fact then, James, having been thrown from the temple mount, landed on the ground and it didn't take, right? He didn't die. And so the people who tried to kill him, they had to come down the mountain and beat his head in with sticks until he died. And tradition tells us that James, as he was bloodied and beaten to death, was actually praying aloud for the people who were persecuting him, praying that the Father 
would forgive them as he died. And brothers and sisters, my point this morning, you know, we sit a week out of Easter, we think about the cross and the empty tomb, we think about our lives. I don't think there is a better apologetic for the empty tomb of Jesus Christ than the teaching and ministry and life of those who knew Jesus best, who at one point in their lives refused to believe that he was who he said he was, but then who in the end died because they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. There's just no other way to explain James opening his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you believe that. It's not all that verse 1 says. And again, I'm not going to spend 50 minutes on verse 1 this morning, but um, let me point out one other thing that I want us to be thinking about here at the outset. The first part of the verse tells us who the letter's from. The second part tells us who the letter is to. James writes, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, what does that mean? James is right here in a way that is sweet but subtle. He's telling us, reminding us, that this world, it's not our home. And that's going to be a truth that's really key as we continue to walk through this book. Now, if you were with us before Easter, we spent four months in the Old Testament book of Joshua. Joshua is all about God's people entering and inhabiting the promised land, the land that he promised to give to them. And we read in Joshua about God's people conquering that land and taking that land just as God said that they would. And they live there, right? At the end of the book of Joshua, God's people, they're inhabiting the land. But there's this big condition, right? God says very clearly at the end of Joshua, you only get to stay here if you continue to follow me and worship me, if you continue to live in covenant relationship with me. And it was not very long, it was not many years before Israel failed to continue in that covenant relationship with God. And so God, he, he promised that it would happen. He gave his people many opportunities to turn, to, to repent, to believe in him, to return to the covenant, but Israel never did. And so eventually, the Lord raised up foreign armies to come in and crush his people in the promised land. First, in the year 722 BC, it was the Assyrian Empire. Second, in the year 586 BC, it was the Babylonian Empire. I'm only saying that stuff so that you think I sound smart this morning. You don't need to remember those details at all. But anyway, those two empires, they came in and they wiped Israel out and hauled the people out of Israel and into exile, right? They're dispersed all over the ancient world. But then God raised up a third empire. Cyrus the Great of Persia in about 500 BC came in and he whooped up on the Assyrians and whooped up on the Babylonians and then he released the people of Israel from their exile and he said you can go home and some of them did. Some of them went back to Israel and rebuilt the nation that had once been so thriving and flourishing but many of those people they remained dispersed. They remained all over the ancient world. Now James he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he writes that because what the New Testament teaches us is that what was true of the ancient Israelites politically and geographically is true for us spiritually, right? And so geographically and politically, the ancient Israelites were dispersed. But for us today, we are dispersed spiritually what that means is, like the ancient Israelites, they were, they were longing for a king, for Messiah to come to restore Israel to glory and so that they could come back to the nation and live there again and not be dispersed any longer. Well, we too, we're longing for our king to come, not to restore an earthly political kingdom, but to restore his heavenly kingdom, to usher in the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth when all of God's people will gather together as one people with him forever and for his glory. And so James, he's here reminding us of the fact that we are the people of God. That's not an ethnic distinction. It's not a political distinction. It's not a national distinction even. It's a spiritual distinction. We're the people of God. But this world is not our home. We're dispersed. And we need to remember that over the next four months as we look at this letter because the simple truth is the teaching in this book, man, it does not make sense if this world is your home. Right? The life that the book of James is going to call us to live 
does not make sense if what this world offers us is all there is. The teaching in this book will only make sense to us if we remember that we are dispersed, if we remember that we are the people of God longing for our heavenly home. Okay, what are we going to do with the rest of our time? So, by the way, this isn't in my my notes, but I'll kind of let you know how the sausage gets made. Um, You know, like three weeks ago, we told y'all we were about to study James. Uh, Pastor Matt let that slip. The cat got out of the bag. Not that it was a secret, um, but we we told the church three weeks ago that this is where we were headed after Easter. Um, The elders had known that for a while. The staff had known that for a while, but only about three weeks ago did we let y'all know what we were doing. Um, I've known and been planning for and preparing for a series in James for about a year. And so by the time we get here to the start of this series, man, if I seem particularly amped up about what we're studying, it's because I've been like, this has been simmering for a really long time in my mind and in my heart, and I'm like, ah, I can't wait to start this. And so, um, man, I've been ready for this for about a year. Um, One of the things that that leads me feeling like I need to do is I need to kind of tease out for you where we are headed. And so what I want to do right now is I want to just give you four key ideas that we're going to see again and again in the book of James over the next four months. These aren't ideas that you necessarily see right here in verse 1, but I'm sure you're going to see these ideas in the five chapters that are ahead of us between now and the end of July. And so I framed these four key ideas as lies that the book of James exposes or refutes. Like James is going to show us, it's going to expose the fact that these are lies. And then James is going to refute it. It means he's going to argue with it and, and disprove it by the way that James teaches us. And so let me give you four things to look for as we move into this letter together. Here's lie number one. Suffering is always bad. Suffering is always bad. James teaches us that God has a purpose for and through suffering, and that he uses suffering to accomplish his greater purposes. Now, we tend to think that bad means bad, but the truth is, and James will tell us this also, we don't really have the ability to know what is best for us and what is worst for us. We don't have the ability to know what is good in our lives and what is bad in our lives. And James will tell us that the key problem there is the problem of our limited perspective. Now, I'm 42 years old. I'm going to turn 43 this week, actually. And if you think about that, like I've seen a lot. But then if you compare my almost 43 years to the infinite, eternal, everlasting God, right? Like my wisdom, my knowledge, my ability to know what is good It's not even a drop in a bucket compared to the wisdom and the omniscience of our God. Which means that I can experience something in my life and I can say, ooh, this stings, it feels bad. And God can say, yeah, I understand that feels bad to you right now. But what you don't see is the 3,000 things I'm doing through that bad thing right now. And if you were able to see those 3,000 things, you would call that bad thing good. Right, James, it tells us, it proves to us that suffering is not always bad. It's a lie to believe that it is. I say this a different way sometimes. James teaches us that God doesn't drive an ambulance. Right, what does an ambulance do? Right, it drives up after an accident the people in that ambulance. They do everything they can to react to that accident, to like help the hurting people as a result of that accident to kind of put things back together and fix the problem that has come because of that accident. Well, brothers and sisters, God, he does not drive an ambulance, which means God does not react to anything. Rather, God causes, he ordains, he purposes, he sets about everything that happens according to his goodness and his providential care for us and for all of creation. But there's never a moment where God is scrambling, trying to figure out what he's going to do with something that's happened. Because everything comes from his good and sovereign hand, which means that everything, even our suffering, is good. 
So that's lie number one that James exposes and refutes. Suffering, it is not always bad. Here's number two. Faith is only intellectual. Right? That's the lie. We want to believe that our faith is something that lives up here, that it's a matter of what we think, of what we believe, rather than what we think and believe and also what we do. Now, James will agree that faith is intellectual, but he's going to teach us that faith is not only intellectual. It's perhaps the most famous and foundational idea that comes from the book of James. Christians, because of James's teaching, agree and believe. For 2,000 years now, we agree and believe that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves is never, ever alone. In other words, real faith, it really works. It shows up in our lives and produces righteousness in our lives. Otherwise, it doesn't exist. Now, here's the thing. Here's the temptation that we face as the people of God. We're tempted to accumulate for ourselves spiritual knowledge, religious knowledge, Bible knowledge, and just to be content with that knowledge, right? Our temptation is to to work on our minds without working on our lives. Our temptation is to be, these are the words of James, hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, to know what the word calls us to while at the same time refusing to do it. James won't let us get away with that. Because James teaches that real faith, it's not only intellectual. He'll teach us that real faith, it really, really works. Here's the third lie. Religion is only private. James exposes that as a lie. He refutes that. Virtually all of the teaching in this book makes it clear that relationships are an essential part of our faith. We're going to see that because so many of the sins that James calls out in this book, they're relational sins, right? Sins like partiality or taming the tongue or jealousy or selfish ambition, right? James is going to tease out these sin struggles and he's going to point to the way that these sin struggles deteriorate and cripple the Christian community. They affect the people of God, not just the persons of God. Because in James's mind, religion, it, it necessarily and essentially, it involves people. Yes, your faith is a private thing, James will agree, but it cannot only be a private thing. You need people. And so James will let you be content having only a private relationship with Jesus. Line number four, riches and comfort will satisfy. You know, the world constantly pulls us to believe that if we could just have a little bit more than what we have right now, that that would be enough. The world constantly pulls us to believe that if we just had slightly more comfort or pleasure or security or material stuff, that then we would be satisfied. But James tells us that the rich will one day weep and howl in misery when they discover how empty those things really are. James says that the inevitable corrosion of our earthly treasures will be evidence against our broken, self-centered hearts on the last day. So he's saying that essentially, like on the last day, when the Lord returns, you're going to have your broken stuff in your hands, and your stuff's going to be broken because everything breaks, everything falls apart. You're going to have your broken stuff in your hands, and that broken stuff is going to testify to how self-centered and wicked your own heart is. That's the argument. That James makes. But then James adds, but the Lord, when he comes again, he will satisfy us with his compassion, with his patience, with his tender mercy, with his gracious forgiveness. These things, James says, and only these things will be enough for us when we see the coming of the Lord. Four lies to be listening for. Let the book of James expose them, not just as we read, but as we reflect on the state of our own hearts, the condition of our own lives. Now, when James wrote this letter, 
And it is a letter, by the way. I know because we like bind it in this fancy leather thing, like sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's a letter. But when James wrote this letter, um, this is a letter that wasn't sent to one individual or even one individual church. It's a letter sent to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, so Christians everywhere. And so we know that James would have like entrusted the scroll of this letter uh, to somebody very dear in whom he had a lot of confidence, but he couldn't send an email or a text message or you know, just film a TikTok video and like blast his message off. He had to write this out and put it in somebody's hand and that somebody had to travel to the church that was going to receive it. Well, when that person arrived at the church where um, the letter was to be received, he would come in on the Lord's Day on Sunday like this, um, and he would stand in the front of the room and he would read the entire letter. Um, it wouldn't be like what we do here where, you know, like I talk about one verse for 50 minutes. No, he would read the entire letter and then the church would take the next weeks, maybe months, maybe years, discussing together what they had heard in that letter. So as we get started in this series today, I thought what we should do is that we should, we should try to reenact that as best as we can. And so I'm, I'm nervous about this. I know what the internet has done to our attention spans, um, but I'm going to read the letter, to James, a letter from James to us here in just a minute. It's going to take us 15 minutes or so. I timed it this week, so I'm pretty confident about that. But I just want you to listen. Follow along. If you have your Bible with you in front of you, wonderful. Follow along. Let's hear these words together. And then we're going to leave the four myths, the four lies on the screen um, so that you can start to like see where that's coming from in this letter. But let's close our time, at least my portion of our time, um, by hearing from the voice of God spoken to us in the letter of James. God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, 
so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or under any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord, church. Pray with me. Father, we ask for faith to believe that you desire our joy more than we do, that your vision for our joy is better than our vision is. Give us the faith to believe that your word leads us upon the path to life. And may we follow that path until we are in your presence where we will experience eternal pleasure at your right hand forevermore. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.